Thanks, Silas. And uh, thank you, Andrew, Stephanie, worship team, for your leadership today. Welcome, everyone, to Bethany Community Church. Wherever you are watching today, at different places in our city, our region, and our world, we count a privilege to worship with you. So thank you for investing time with us. We're continuing a series entitled A New Shape of Things. I ask that you just take a moment and join me now as we pray together. Father, we want to thank you that uh, as we gather in a variety of circumstances, we just come before you because the week has left us raw, many of us. It's been tough. And our prayer, Father, is that we would be able to look to you, draw to you, hear from you, be shaped by you, so that we would be people of hope and engagement, not despair and disengagement, people of passion and compassion, not rage and hate, people of your kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world. Turn that end, speak to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. A very interesting time in which we find ourselves. Every week that I've been doing this in an empty sanctuary has felt challenging in some ways. Uh, May none more challenging than this week. It feels as if it's getting more difficult to speak to an empty sanctuary rather than easier. Not because the sanctuary is empty, but because the time in which we live is increasingly polarized and, uh, and angry. And this week, we saw kind of the perfect cocktail of social isolationism, coupled with our already embedded idol in our culture of individualism, creating in all of us kind of this hunger to belong and connect. We want to be with people. We want to hug people. We want to, we want to touch one another. We can't. It's very frustrating. And we're at home, some of us, with not enough to do. And then an act of racist police opens a floodgate, which kind of releases this river of pent-up frustration, entirely understandable. And yet, I'm going to say to you with humility, this is a dangerous moment for Christ followers. Because the last thing that we want to do is get caught up in what is solely a political river of rage rather than following the drumbeat of Christ and following Christ's kingdom reign for this moment. So we don't want to get caught up in uh, partisan politics and political wars and all the posturing that that entails because when we do, we as Christ followers lose our unity, we lose our civility. Uh, some of us, beca- be, we, we, we begin to become, uh, I would say, afraid of speaking that which is on our heart because we know that if it's contrary to the party line, we'll be, we'll be censored. And, and, and so we're at a crossroads. And this is exactly where Peter and the disciples found themselves in Acts chapter 4, at a crossroads at risk of censorship by the temple authorities. And their way forward in response to the threat of punishment if they didn't submit to censorship is our way forward. I would suggest that uh, the, the disciples' response to people in power reveal three vital truths for this moment. And we'll look at them in just a second here. They are confession, prayer, and the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what we need 
to move forward. We'll see that. But I'll set up the context for you. If you were here with us last week, you know that uh, Peter had uh, performed a miracle. He'd healed a man. And the temple authorities uh, then were threatened by that man's healing. And they went and said to Peter and the disciples, "Uh, look, we forbid you from speaking anymore in Jesus' name. And then Peter responded and said, we're going to speak in Jesus' name anyway. And then they went back and they reported to all the Christ followers that were gathered in this room, the original 120 probably, they reported, hey, this is what happened. Uh, The temple authorities told us we cannot speak in Jesus' name. And then they, they go to God in prayer. There's confession, there's prayer, and there's power. How they responded to the threat of authority is incredibly timely and instructive for us. Because in case you hadn't noticed, there's a great deal of conflict in this moment, June 2020, between established authority and those under established authority. And buildings are burning down and police offices are being uh, vacated and Capitol Hill has been occupied and we don't know what to do. We don't know whose side to be on. We don't know how to, we don't know how to cheer. We don't, we don't know what to do. And even if we thought we knew, we're afraid to say anything. And so how do we respond in this moment when we're not sure whose side to be on? And maybe we don't even want to be on a side other than God's side. How, like, how do we get there? That's this text. So very timely. I mean, we planned Acts a while ago, not knowing any of this. And every week, it's undone me. Just the preparation, let alone the, the delivery because it's been so timely for the, the moment in which we find ourselves. So I want to look at these three things, confession, prayer, and power in our time together today. We begin with confession. Uh, the disciples have already said to the temple authorities, here's the disciples, here's the authorities. They've already said, look, we're going to obey God, not you. They've already said that. So we're going to follow God. Then they go back and they report to um, the rest of the uh, disciples their companions, verse 23, they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. That's that censorship threat, basically. And when they heard this, when they, uh, the, the companions heard this, they lifted their, their voice to God with one accord and they, and they prayed and they confessed. So the disciples' response to Peter's news that they've been threatened if they didn't obey this command uh, to stop talking about Jesus, the disciples and the companions, their response is a prayer of confession. Now, we tend, we tend to think of confession as admission of guilt, right? That's how the Soviets used it. It's like, we'll pull you in a room, confess, right? So here, sign the confession. Like, you're guilty. That's how we think of confession. The Greek word, though, actually means to say, literally, it means to say the same thing. It's the Greek word, Homo legeo, homo same legeo, speak, to speak the same thing. So confession literally means to say the same thing about something as God would say. So what is confession actually? Confession is aligning ourselves uh, with God, with God's heart, God's thought. And we need to confess continually. Why? Because we drift away, as Hebrews 2 says, we drift away from the heart of God. All of us do. We get busy. We get preoccupied. We're, you know, assaulted with commercials and uh, media and social media. We, we go online. We get angry. We get frustrated. We get cynical. We don't know what's true. We drift away. Confession is how we get back. If any of you ski in the room, and I do, 
If you ever skied a slalom course, you know, with those little gates, you point your skis straight down, but you can't go straight down. The course forces you to continually make adjustments. So you start going straight down, and then you got to go right, and then you got to go left, then you got to go right, then you got to go left. That's your, hello, that's your life. Like, my hope is that we would all of us develop habits of turning and turning and turning and turning and turning, always back to God. That's confession. A continually turning my heart to God and my, so that my spirit and soul and body are all aligned with God's purpose. We need to do it like every day and really moment by moment. So when the disciples are faced with a conflict in the temple with these temple authorities, they've already declared <clears throat> that obedience to God is more important than obedience to any human authority. And then they return to their friends and told about the confrontation. And then they pray. And when they pray, it's a confession. And here, listen, this is their confession. They say, oh Lord, it is you who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them. It is you who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David said, why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the peoples devise a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers together against Christ. That's a confession. So they're agreeing with God about something, basically, is what they're doing. And so, when, like, if you unpack and you ask the question, what are they agreeing with God about? There's three things, and we'll look at them very briefly here. They're agreeing, first of all, that God's a creator. Second, that the Holy Spirit has been here for a long time. Third, that there will always be resistance. So watch this, because it's all there. God, we agree. You created the heavens and the earth. And embedded in that confession is the belief that we just heard sung so beautifully and powerfully. I mean, that's an amazing song. We, we heard this. God loves all of us. Why? Because God is the creator of all of us. We are all from one blood. Black, white, rich, poor, gay, straight. People living on the streets. People living in mansions. People living in Asia. People living in Africa. People living in Antarctica. God made it all from one family. And God's desire is that we return once again to one family. And that one family is what the world longs for. So confession begins with that. All people come from one blood. All people created as image bearers. All people then worth our attention and our compassion and our solidarity, worth dignity, every single person, the protester and the police, everyone. That's the kingdom. God's the creator. Second, we believe that the Holy Spirit has been among us for a long time. That's their confession. Because this is what they say. They say, uh, verse 25, by the Holy Spirit, David said, and then they quote Psalm 2, and what they're saying is, you know what? Uh, the Spirit that came a few days ago on Pentecost, we now know that Spirit was already here. That Spirit was in David in, uh, when, when the Psalms were anointed. That Spirit was in Saul when when he was anointed as the first king. That spirit was in Jeremiah the prophet. That spirit was in Job. That spirit was in Amos. That spirit was in the people of God when the people of God surrendered. That spirit is available always. And without that spirit, listen, we've got nothing. Go back to the book of Zechariah, and there's this beautiful passage, not by might, not by power will this mountain ever be removed, but by my spirit, it'll be removed. God does amazing things through people wholly given over to the Holy Spirit. So confession number one, God's a creator. 
Number two, the Holy Spirit's been among us. Confession number three, there will always be resistance to God's reign, always. And that's wrapped up in this quote in Acts 4 of Psalm 2, which reads this way. Hey, the Gentiles are raging and the peoples are devising futile things and the kings of the earth are taking their stand with rulers against the Messiah and against Christ. That's the way it is. And so this is, this is what's wrapped up in verses 25 and 26. Don't equate resistance of God's reign to resistance to institutional religion, because if you do that, you're missing the point. Resistance to God's reign through history has, has occurred kind of basically in two large categories. There are those who identify with the name of Jesus, and they're persecuted for identifying with the name of Jesus. I was in Nepal some years ago. Uh, we did a little medical clinic in a community for a number of days. 600 different uh, Hindu families came and visited uh, this medical clinic over the course of two or three days. And then they, you know, they slaughtered a, a, a yak at the end of the time to offer us some gratitude. We had a little party. We all sat around, you know, cross-legged in a circle. And there's, in, this, in this Christian community, there's what look like Tibetan prayer flags. They look exactly like Tibetan prayer flags. But these people have just written scriptures on those same flags. It's a church. And the pastor said, our church has been burned down six times. I've been in jail 12 times for preaching the gospel. But the Hindu community, because you were here, speaking to us at the medical community, because you were here, they have promised they'll never burn our church down again. And I'll never be arrested. Thank you for coming. You've given us credibility. But they've been, he'd been persecuted for 15 years simply for the name of Jesus. But then, hear me, there are others who are persecuted who may not use the name of Jesus, but they have the values of Jesus. And the values of Jesus, we just heard it read. God, you're the creator of all. Anyone who says <clears throat> we're all from one blood and racism should end is embodying the values of Jesus. Black lives matter, values of Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? And, and, and so there are those then who persecute those who embody the values of Jesus, whether or not they use the name of Jesus. And then you ask the question, well, why would anyone persecute the values of Jesus? And the answer is because God's reign moves people, moves all of us away from a system of domination to a system of unity and interdependency. And therefore, those doing the dominating stand to lose by kingdom values. Does that make sense? Like if I've got all this stuff and now it's going to be enough for everybody, I'm afraid, wow, if I, if I align with God's kingdom values, I could lose my position. I could lose my power. I could lose my wealth. I could lose my influence, my authority. And so there's a resistance. And that's what we read in Psalm 2 and Acts 4. The Gentiles raging, the kings of the earth, standing against God. Not just the name of Jesus, the values of Jesus. So there are beneficiaries of the domination systems we're told in the scriptures, who will refuse to give up those systems. And uh, such people may or may not sound Christian, but in his day, Jesus said regarding those kind of people, uh, look, there are people in the domination system who are very religious. They believe in God. They know God. They serve in the temple. They, they, they study the Bible. They memorize the Bible. But their spirituality has granted them 
a great deal of wealth and prestige and authority. And Jesus says of them in Matthew chapter 23, verses two and three, when he's feeding the crowd, he says, listen, regarding these spiritual leaders, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Because, because their love of power has made them resistant to, to, to mercy and compassion and sacrifice and generosity and justice. They tithe their spices, man. They're legalists. But, but they don't visit the poor. And, and, and they neglect the widow and the orphan. And they're unwilling to cross social divides. And they're sitting in judgment over people who are sinning in the ways that they themselves are sinning. Don't follow what they do, but follow what they say. God went to great lengths to dismantle the domination system when he created the nation of Israel. He gave Israel the Sabbath, for example, so that people could rest. He gave people a sabbatical year every seven years. He gave people the year of Jubilee so that debts would be forgiven and land would be returned to the, middle, uh, to, the, to the previous generations of owners, the original owners, thus preserving forever a middle class in perpetuity. There was, there was profound generosity and justice offered toward orphans and immigrants. Uh, it's a different system. But, but then when you read the history in the Old Testament, what you find is the domination system remains entrenched in the nation of Israel, just as it had in other cultures. Hosea chapter four, verses one and two says this, hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you. What's the charge? Though you know me, though you sing, though you have a temple, there is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God. And the presenting problem is lying, murder, stealing, adultery, bloodshed upon bloodshed. So there's a domination system in place, even though you're religious. That's a very important word for us. And the default direction of water is downhill. And in the same way that the default direction of water is downhill, the default direction of cultures, according to Psalm 2, will always be toward a domination system. You know, Russia can start this revolution in 1917 with this beautiful ideal of everybody having just the right amount. And in the end, it's a domination system. Same thing in Central America, domination system. In every culture, we move toward domination systems. We have to fight it. Poets know this, Bruce Hornsby. Remember that song, That's Just the Way It Is? Standing in line, marking time, waiting for the welfare dime because they can't buy a job. And a man in a silk suit hurries by and he catches the poor old lady's eyes and just for fun, he mocks her. He says, get a job. And then the, then the chorus, that's just the way it is. Some things never change. Second verse, hey, little boy, you can't go where others go because you don't look like they do. Hey, old man, how can you stand to talk that way? Do you really think about it before you made the rules? And he said, hey, son, that's just the way it is. Separate water fountains, back of the bus, no voting rights, lynching laws. That's just the way it is. And then the, 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 the chorus goes on. Some things will never change because we won't let them change. Domination system. Here's the deal. We've been down this road over and over and over and over again. And so this prayer begins with confession. God, we're confessing. You made it all so everyone matters equally, but... There's a, domination, there's a domination system on the table. Right now, in the temple, there are people who don't want the name of Jesus spoken. Right now, in 2020, there are people who don't want equal access, who don't want equal justice. That's just the way it is. 
And then uh, we had to respond to that in prayer with a prayer for boldness. And that's exactly what they pray. They say, so God, after this confession, they say, grant that your bondservants, verse uh, 29, may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and wonders take place through your name. So we're praying here in response to a threat, we're praying for boldness. The disciples uh, were told by the temple authorities to shut up. Uh, the, the temple authorities had just killed Jesus. And as we'll see in a few weeks, people with religious and spiritual authority had already at that time in history displayed a willingness to kill people who were a threat to them. And now they're threatening uh, the disciples. And, and, and this willingness to kill people who are a threat to us, I call this the mark of Cain. Because in the Bible, from Genesis all the way to the next to the last book of the Bible in Jude, Cain shows up. And if you know the story, Cain and Abel were the offspring of Adam and Eve. And then we know this, Cain, it says Cain rose up and killed Abel. They were both religious. They were both worshipers of God. They both offered sacrifices, but one was unwilling to change and he rose and he killed his brother. And the mark of Cain is people who are like this. I will not relinquish an inch of my values, my stuff, my convictions. I will never change. That's Cain. And not only will I never change, but anyone who threatens what I have, I'm going after you, man. That's Cain. Sound familiar? Remember the movie Harriet Tubman? Uh, if they take our slaves away, we'll lose the farm, Mark of Cain. And then you put it in Bible terms, 19th century. Uh, here's Bishop Stephen Elliott of Georgia. This is what he, I'm quoting now. Critics of slavery should consider whether by their interference with this institution, they may not be checking and impeding a work which is directly from God. For nearly a hundred years, English and American churches have been striving to civilize and Christianize Western Africa. And with what result? Only a few natives in comparison with the millions who've learned the way of heaven and made, the way to know their, uh, made their way to know the Savior through the means of slavery. <laughs> At this very moment, there are three to four million Africans educating for earth and heaven in the so vilified southern states learning the very best lessons, lessons of self-control and obedience and perseverance and adaptation and learning above all where their weakness lies that they may acquire strength for the battle of life. God bless slavery. You want to throw up? I mean, that's the church. Domination system. Mark of Cain. So here's the temple authorities right there in the line of Cain, threatening this new liberating movement of God in the same way that the Roman church threatened the Celtic church and the Roman church threatened the Eastern church <clears throat> and the Roman uh, church threatened the Protestant church and then the Protestant church, once it got its freedom, threatened the radical reformers and then the radical reformers, once they got their freedom, threatened those who believed that women could preach and on and on and on and on it goes. I have power, you're a threat, I want to do away with you. That's the mark of Cain. And so then uh, these guys face a threat. Shut up or you're going to pay the price. And what do they pray? Well, 
they pray for boldness. Remember that song? That's just the way it is. Some things will never change. That's just the way it is. What's the last line of that song, though, actually? Here's the last line. But don't you believe it. There's a better way. And that's how they pray. They don't pray for protection. They they don't pray for judgment to be poured out on, on the temple authorities. They pray for one thing. God, make us bold to speak of your kingdom and bold to embody your kingdom. And what's more, they expect that ethic will be made visible in tangible ways. God, we believe that as we point others to you and live out from your power, you will continue to extend your hand and do miracles. You'll bring healing. You'll bring reconciliation. You'll bring justice. You'll bring solidarity. You'll you'll minister to immigrants. You'll cross social divides. You'll do miracles. So look, God, we're not praying that you do it. The, The temple authorities, do what you want. The temple, it's not our concern. We pray for one thing. May we make visible your reign. That's it. It's important for them and us to ask what at the bedrock foundation is the most important desire for these disciples. It's not their protection. It's not the defunding of the temple authorities. It's a prayer that they remain faithful to their calling regardless of consequences. They may not agree on what to do with temple authorities. They may not not agree on how much protection they want, but they know one thing. The one thing they pray for, may we remain faithful. I can't control how, how you, God, address the rising and falling of civilizations, how you, God, protect organizations or how organizations are destroyed. That is not my concern. My concern, may I be found faithful to shine as light in darkness, to, 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 to be hope in despair, to be love in the midst of hate, to be peace in the midst of violence. May that be my calling and our calling. Oppression, injustice, racism, sexism, economic systems that, that leave millions stuck in poverty. It's not just the way it is. Don't believe it. Because of the mark of Cain, there will be oppression. There will be injustice. There will be racism. There will be sexism, but it's not just the way it is. Because he's risen, there's a different trajectory. <laughs> Psalm 2, 7 through 9. Let me read it for you. So significant for this moment in history. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. This Psalm speaks of Jesus. You're my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations as your inheritance to the very ends of the earth. And you will break my editorial comment. You will break the mark of Cain with a rod of iron. We know the end of the story. Christ has the last word. And all this nonsense is shattered. So what then? You know, sit around and pray for the rapture? No. Jesus said, the kingdom is within you now. So pray for boldness to embody kingdom values. And at times, I'm telling you this, embodying kingdom values will align you with the political left. It will. And at times it'll align you with the right. It certainly will. Doesn't matter because your goal is not alignment uh, to a, a political party to gain political power. Your goal is to make the reign of our eternal king visible here and now. And so they pray 
for courage. And the result? Third truth, they receive, again, the power of the Holy Spirit. It says, when they prayed, uh, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. They prayed for boldness. The answer, fullness of the Holy Spirit. I find this interesting that they didn't pray to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They prayed to live fully in God's story. And as a result, they were filled with the Spirit. They want to be bold in their declaration and bold in making visible that Jesus is the source of everything that's just and healing and beautiful and reconciling the world. That's verses 29 and 30. And that's what they want. God, above all else, may we be faithful to make you visible. What do you want? In a culture of individualism is our idol and social isolation is our reality, it's incredibly tempting to want a political tribe to kind of hug us. And I'm just here to say, please no. We serve a higher king, higher authority. What we want as a community, we want the boldness to make God's reign visible. Because if that's what we want, we know, and we already know, sometimes the left won't like it. Sometimes the right won't like it. But we're not attached to the power and domination system of this world. We're, we're attached to Christ's reign and Christ's kingdom. You want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Then pray for the boldness to align yourself entirely with God's good reign. And God will fill you, and you and we together will be hope in our city. Let's pray together. Father, we're going to thank you that we have this opportunity today in a, in a time of polarity and division and violence. We have a time to, with your early church example, confess. You're the creator. You've written a better story. You love all people. May we then, Lord, be bold to advocate for all people, to love all people, to serve all people in your name. And we pray with Jesus, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm-hmm.